This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 4th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Donald Trump gets applause for promising to tax, that is, put tariffs on foreign produced goods. The biggest losers in such a bad deal would be American consumers on tight budgets. Scott Lincecum, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discusses how one of Trump's early endorsers explained clearly how the poor would pay the price for Trump's protectionism. Chris Collins, uh, you describe him as a Republican backbencher from New York, uh, has endorsed Donald Trump. He was the first endorsement. What do you take away from uh, the the endorsement that he gave? Uh, He gave a little talk on MSNBC after issuing that endorsement. What did he say and what what struck you about it? Well, what struck me was um, it was a rather forthright admission, um, rare among those who advocate for tariffs and taxes on, on imports and attack China, um, that uh, American consumers would see significant price increases on pretty much everything they buy. Um, Representative Collins said he expected a 10 to 15 percent increase in, in um, goods and services. Now, um, you know, I'm not going to check his math, but the admission is 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 great in that it shows um, the ultimate effect of uh, Donald Trump's and others' uh, protectionism, and that is significant price increases for American consumers on food, clothing, shelter, and the rest of everything they buy. There was a Trump rally not too long ago where he basically said. You know, as he repeats quite often, we're getting killed on trade. I won't do the impression here. Uh, and in order to fight back, his argument has been in public, and these were people applauding this, to impose a 35% tax. It would effectively be a tariff on, uh, in his words, foreign made air conditioners. And to the sounds of applause. Right. Well, um, you know, this is the classic um, blazing saddle scene of negotiating um, by putting a gun to your own head. Um, you know, really the threat here is that we are going to hurt ourselves uh, via these import taxes in order to somehow convince the Chinese to stop their their allegedly bad behavior. Now, leaving aside for a second that, you know, we have fair trade laws in the United States, um, and this isn't this doesn't have anything to do with those. Uh, this would instead be Donald Trump's unilateral uh, subjective view of fairness, uh, deciding that our voluntary purchases of Chinese TVs or clothes or whatever are uh, unfair and are harming. We are harming ourselves, um, and thus we we must, by the force of government, pay more. Um, the other part of that. Um, is that those funds, those higher prices, will really be going to subsidize American manufacturers. And that's the other, I think, really important thing here, that not only are we paying more um, to supposedly punish China, um, we're really paying more to subsidize uh, American steel workers and uh, U- U.S. steel. Um, it is a it's about as blatant uh, redistribution program as you can get. The only difference is that instead of um, your tax dollars going to the Treasury and then going to U.S. steel, um, they go directly. Your money goes directly to U.S. steel just through higher prices. And yeah, that money wouldn't be going to say reduce taxes or reduce the federal debt. Right. Exactly. And um, of course, the money that you're spending on a more expensive T-shirt. Um, 
um, or uh, a more expensive car uh, is money that you can't spend on other uh, goods and services, probably stuff like housing and healthcare or frivolous things like eating out at restaurants that actually support a lot of American jobs, the vast majority of American jobs, actually. Manufacturing jobs, uh, you point out, as a share of total employment in the United States, excluding the farm sector, has been in decline since at least the early 1940s. Correct. Correct. And in fact, the total number of manufacturing jobs peaked in 1979. Um, so what we're seeing is a long-term trend um, in the decline of manufacturing jobs, a trend that began, as you note, long before uh, there was a NAFTA, long before China was trading in the global marketplace or joined the World Trade Organization. It pretty much was the end of World War II after exactly. the, our military buildup in World War II that spiked employment in uh, manufacturing, and it's been in decline ever since. And, it, and if you look at the chart that you lay out here, it is a steady, it is a sustained decline that has flattened out in the last few years. Right. And, and in fact, um, the, it is a very similar decline to what we saw in farming in America um, in the late 1800s and early, early 20th century. Um, the, the fact is the, the vast majority of manufacturing job losses have nothing to do with trade. They are about productivity gains, whether they be computers or robots or other forms of mechanization. Um, and by attacking China, by hurting American consumers, consumers, um, you're really not going to do much to stall this long-term trend. Um, we're not going to see a the United States um, have you know 50% manufacturing jobs. It's just not um, possible given um, the level of automation and sophistication we have. And nonetheless, uh, manufacturing output in the United States is at historic highs. Right. And and it's just it's an interesting thing, uh, libertarians, of course, harp on this all the time, the idea that somehow these jobs, uh, often in lower tech uh, portions of the manufacturing industry, would come back to the United States and that Americans would actually want those jobs is it's highly questionable. Well, it's very questionable. Um, you know, assuming we didn't uh, destroy the robots um, and attempted to regain manufacturing jobs by closing off, by walling off the American economy, um, the the fact is that um, <laughs> you still wouldn't see uh, significant gains. Um, and if you only go after one country, say China, the most likely result is what we call trade diversion, which is simply uh, imports moving to a different source. So for example, instead of buying from China, China we buy from Vietnam or India. Um, and it's just simply not possible to support um, those jobs in the United States, most of them. Dan Eikenson makes this point a lot. It's an important one. I think it's the most one of the most important points that we can make on behalf of robust and free trade is the idea that about half of what the U.S. imports is stuff that goes into stuff Americans make. Yeah. 
often for domestic consumption and for export. Correct. Correct. The United States is the second largest exporting country in the world. Um, we are the first or second largest manufacturer. Um, and the half of what we import are, are capital goods and equipment and other things that go into uh, their manufacturing inputs. Um, so that, that's the other half of the equation. Even, again, if we somehow were to stop trading, um, that would actually be hurting a lot of manufacturing jobs. So you're not even talking about all manufacturing jobs being helped by some sort of um, massive tariff on, uh, on Chinese imports. You're really talking about a fraction of those jobs. And of course, those jobs are a, a mere fraction of our total workforce. Uh, it's really, it's about 10% or so. About 80% of us work in services. So for us, we see no benefits to those tariffs. To the extent that uh, Donald Trump has used any multisyllabic words in reference to uh, foreign direct investment in the United States. Has he made any statements about that? Because I know uh, Donald Trump does very well in states where there are massive foreign investments by auto manufacturers and other manufacturers. Well, he says he, claim, he claims to want foreign investment. Um, at the same time, however, uh, he fails to recognize that that foreign investment comes from an open trading relationship. And, and supply chains that exist all over that move Ex through stages of production all over the world. Exactly. If you look at, for example, a BMW plant in South Carolina, um, it imports a lot of parts from Germany or from Japan, um, and it only exists in, in, in South Carolina through that foreign investment and through that supply chain, through that open trading environment. Um, so, and then, of course, there's the basic economic fact that uh, you know, a trade deficit is a capital account surplus, which in very simple terms means the dollars we send overseas to buy stuff come back to us in the form of foreign investment. So if you like foreign investment, which most people do, uh, you, you need that open trading relationship. The moral component of trade is something that we try to push here as well. And Trump certainly isn't alone in talking about uh, trade as a zero-sum game. Right. Bernie Sanders has made uh, great hay out of talking about trade as something that we need to be very concerned about. Yeah, and you know, it's it's fascinating to see them push the emotional argument um, for protectionism while ignoring the abject immorality of, of their own policies, of their protectionism. And what I mean by that is that you know, the, 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 the biggest beneficiaries of free trade are poor American consumers, and it's not even close. And this is particularly true for China because, you know, you think about it, poor people are far more likely to buy stuff made in China at Walmart and elsewhere. So, so these poor people are then being forced, again, by government to subsidize uh, manufacturing in America. And that is the, the, a very regressive kind of reverse Robin Hood tax on the poor to support the rich. Um, there is, you know, they call Trump's protectionism populist. Uh, in reality, it's, it's anti-populist. Uh, it is really going to tax the poor to feed the rich. Scott Lincecum is an international trade attorney and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.